by way of wishing you a happy winter solstice, we'll start with a poem called Winter Solstice. It's given to me at the beginning of this retreat, and um, it's by Rebecca Parker. Perhaps for a moment, the typewriters will stop clicking, the wheels stop rolling, the computers desist from computing, and a hush will fall over the city. For an instant in the stillness, the chiming of the celestial spheres will be heard as the earth hangs poised in the crystalline darkness and then gracefully tilts. Let there be a season when holiness is heard and the splendor of living is revealed, stunned to stillness by beauty. We remember who we are and why we are here. There are inexplicable mysteries, and we are not alone. In the universe, there moves a wild one whose gestures alter the Earth's access towards love. In the immense darkness, everything spins with joy. The cosmos enfolds us. We are caught in a web of stars, cradled in a swaying embrace, rocked by the holy night, babes of the universe. Let this be the time we wake to life. Like spring wakes in the very moment of winter solstice. So here we are in the very moment, a few hours late, of winter solstice. And tonight I want to talk about the journey of retreat. And I'm going to talk about it first through telling a story that is of the outer journey, because I feel that the outer journey and the inner journey reflect each other so much. And the question that I get most asked by students, and I think that all of us teachers get most asked by students is, how do I take this retreat and live it in my life? How do I take these teachings and live it in my life? So I actually want to go backwards and start with life and then translate it back into the retreat because as we learn this process of translation, um, our lives become more informed by these teachings and these retreats become more informed by our lives. So this is a story of an outer journey. It's the story of a trek in the uh, Indian Himalayas. And as I mentioned the first evening, John and I just returned back, I guess, just less than a week ago now, from a six-month journey to Asia. And we begin in the Indian Himalaya, in Ladakh. And this was last summer. It's 11,500 feet there in the lowlands of Ladakh. And after a couple of weeks of 
acclimatizing ourselves to a different type of breathing, we decided to take a trek in the Himalayas. Now, I had never even been backpacking in the West, but I had been working myself up to this for for months and seasons and uh, preparing myself inwardly and uh, outwardly, and I really wanted to do it. I was excited and I was very nervous. I'm sure those of you that it's your first retreat, you can relate. It's like something new. So we began on this trail. It was one of the main trails uh, in the area. And we began, and there was definitely a trail, which lasted for about five minutes. (laughs) And then we ended up in this canyon. And the trail consisted of these rocks that were, you know, uh, not boulders, but, you know, bigger than my foot. And they were just all jumbled together, and and we were walking along, and I was thinking, hmm, sprained ankles, you know, those thoughts that we have when we're walking or sitting about possible calamities. Um, But I was really wanting to do this. So everything was going along fairly well until, you know there's going to be an until in this story, until I met the first rushing stream. I love streams. In the West, I actually hike up streams in the stream. This was not a Western stream. This was, um, well, it was rushing much faster than what I was used to. I couldn't really tell how deep it was in the center, and I could not tell whether the rocks were slippery or even really how many there were in the stream. And my whole system just stopped and said, no, I can't do this. I can't do this stream. The trek is over. I'm going back. Uh, And John, you know, who's been trekking in the Himalayas for 40 years, already had his boots off. And, uh, okay, we're going. And I said, no, I can't. I cannot do this. He said, oh, you can. It's not that deep. I said, I can't, and I meant it. I really meant it in that moment. It's so interesting what it takes to move us from that moment of pure fear and frozenness, and I can't, to that first step or that first breath with the experience. So something moved me, and I figured I could at least get my boots off and my pants rolled up. And um, one step at a time, you know, I got across that stream. And uh, as things often are, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Uh, It was cold, it was deep, but not unbearable, not impossible. Oh, it was like this elation, you know, of realizing that we can cross over our boundaries of beliefs. You know, my boundaries of beliefs and ability. We run into that over and over in our lives and on retreat. And what happened as I was having that moment of, wow, I did it, was I immediately out of the corner of my eye saw that there was another young woman coming up to the stream. She was younger than I was, and she was carrying a big pack, and it looked heavy. 
And she had that same look in her eye of kind of half desperate, half afraid. And I just turned and stopped. That immediate response to help once we've moved through an experience and learned some tools, right? Um, So I turned and the creek was too loud to call across the creek, but I just, I was just there. I was ready to grab her if she fell. Um, and she made it across just like I did. And just this immediate words of encouragement, wow, you did it, you know? I hear there's only four more creeks to go today. <laughs> you know, I'm so happy for you. What's your name? You know, connection. Um, so we started up the trail. And I was feeling pretty good. You know, the way that we do after there's a challenge and you're feeling pretty good. And uh, then we kind of came around a bend and there it was. This hillside that was about the worst thing I could possibly imagine in that moment, which was a very steep hillside that was completely made of shale. And I kind of looked for the trail. I I wasn't seeing anything. And I finally saw the trail. The trail was, you know, barely one foot wide and in the shale. And it was quite long to my perception, being a new trekker. John was already up that shale. He didn't even notice that I was actually in more panic than I had been at the stream. And, um, you know, that I can't. It's like in those moments, our core beliefs come up. So there was this, I can't. But then there was just this movement like, well, it's either go back across the stream or go across the shale. So here we go. And, you know, a combination of intense focus, uh, bordering on hypervigilance. and a lot of breath holding. And, you know, it was past. It was over. And we made it up to where we stayed at 13,200 feet. We were planning to hike over a pass. That was the trek, that was the trail, that was the destination. But of course, life has its own plans and it turned out that the pack we were carrying was entirely too heavy. We brought way too many things. <laughs> and to make matters worse, we got reports back from trekkers who had been turned around at the next camp because it was full. What to do? You know, it's like plan B, plan C, all of our expectations. Uh, one of my favorite things about expectations was they had a contest once and it was a contest about saying your autobiography in five words and the winner of the contest was it wasn't what I expected (laughs) in terms of their life so there we were it was a track we were supposed to be going somewhere there was a destination Um, and it wasn't happening. What that created space for was something that would have never happened if we had pushed through and said, I am going to do this thing that I'm going to do, which was it allowed for this incredible experience of presence and um, kind of the wow of the Indian Himalayas. 
And we just took long day hikes every day for several days. We'd pick up quartz crystal that was just lying on the ground. You know, we would add rocks to the, um, the chortons that were everywhere, which, you know, in the West, we have these rock piles that people build on the trails. You know, they use their chortons. You know, we just laid down for a while at this one kind of very high area that was in the opposite direction of the trek. Just looked at the clouds. They're so different up there. And eventually we returned, you know, and there were those five streams again, and people were jumping across rocks in the middle of them, and I was watching, and I thought, no, I'm just going to take off my boots, wade across, put on the boots, dry my feet, take off the boots, wade across, dry my feet, you know, and without a lot of judgment, I realized they're more experienced than me. And maybe they haven't had the ankle issues I've had. You know, these are their conditions and causes. These are mine. And this is my path and this is theirs. And sure enough, there was that shale again, you know, the dreaded shale. And the minute I put my feet on the trail of that shale, what happened was all the years of training, and it was just this metaphrase, Heather, take a breath. Take a breath, honey. Take another breath, take another step. You know, sure enough, halfway across that trail, my worst nightmare happened, and my foot slipped off that single foot trail, and, you know, the rock started sliding down the hill. And, you know, the response was take a breath, take the next step, you know? And I didn't fall down the hill, but I realized if I had, there would have been a sense of relaxation that wasn't present the first time, you know? I'm hoping that as I told that story that you could start to draw the parallels in your own life and in your own practice here. It's such a key to our journey in this life to be able to make those bridges and draw those parallels and give the insights space to arrive and honor them with our attention. You know, and as Everyone tells their stories in this life, whether it's in a talk or whether it's anywhere. You know, it's all our story. They're incredibly personal. You may have never hiked in the Indian Himalayas, but it's incredibly universal. So I'll talk about how I feel like these stories, these outer journeys, these inner journeys, how that journey in Ladakh relates to what we're doing here on retreat. Donald talked quite a bit last night about expectations, and uh, certainly when you came in here on this retreat, we shared the refuges and the precepts and talked about the instructions for the practice. And, you know, there are all these tools and, and kind of this encouragement that there is a path. You're going to be okay, and we're all going to walk this path together. And then I'm sure at certain points already on this retreat, you've gotten to a sitting or a meal or a moment where you've said, you know, what am I doing here? Path? What path? 
And then you're just stumbling along to the next sit, following along the retreat in front of you because the bell just rang and you can't figure out any way to get out of it. (laughs) It's like that sometimes, you know. But then we heard how many people have traveled this path, which sometimes appears to be a non-path before. Thousands and thousands of people for thousands of years. We figure, well, you know, if they can do it, I'll try it. So taking that inspiration when you need it, you know, taking that inspiration from the yogi in front of you or from, you know, the Buddha or Prajnaparamita, the mother of the Buddhas, you know, these lineages of experience that we don't have to know it all and we don't have to do it all and we don't have to be it all. What a relief. And then there are many rushing streams that we reach. Uh, Sometimes I call them road bumps, which is another kind of journey metaphor. You know, and something happens in our system and we get sucked into our thoughts and we believe them. And this is a normal part of being a conditioned human being. It's not that we made a mistake at all. So we hit a road bump and immediately the mind throws up, oh, there's a problem. And the way that I like to relate to these things is in the spirit of a teacher who's very important to me, an English nun who uh, lives in India and spent 12 years meditating in a cave. Her name is Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo. And my current favorite quote from her is, If you see something as an obstacle, it's an obstacle. If you see the same thing as an opportunity, it's an opportunity. And I use that a lot in my practice. It's like, what am I creating out of this experience? An obstacle or an opportunity? Or the dance of both, you know, in the course of 30 seconds. I thought I would talk a little bit more about what Donald mentioned last night. I don't think he called them by name, but he was talking about the five so-called hindrances to practice. So again, you can call them the five so-called hindrances to practice. You could also call them five opportunities to wake up. Your choice. Traditionally, they're called hindrances. So the first frequent visitor on our retreats, and certainly in our lives, all of these are frequent visitors in our lives, but on retreat we have the time and the space, the intention and the support to really get to know them better. That's all. So the first frequent visitor is the flavor of desire. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. All these things you're well familiar with by now. So desire in its forms, uh, attachment, clinging, I want, right? And when I mentioned these, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some skillful means to work with them and expand on what Donald said last night. So in terms of desire, the traditional skillful means for working with them are first this moment of mindfulness that remembers that they're impermanent. So there's times when we're caught up in desire that we could just walk around for a while reminding ourselves, ah, this too shall pass. 
this too shall pass. And that can almost be a metaphrase of bringing kindness to this wanting mind that's so incessant. And the other antidote is really obvious but not easy, and that's letting go. And I thought I would tell you one more short story from my journey. I actually think I'll begin the story now and end it later, but it's about desire. And it happened one week ago, exactly, Tuesday evening one week ago, in Singapore International Airport. So we had uh, done the first leg of our journey home, and we were in Singapore, and we needed to spend the night there. Singapore International Airport is very large. It has three terminals, and they're huge. There are thousands of people there. We were looking for our overnight hotel to stay in. We finally found it, and we were unpacking our luggage cart of our carry-on luggage when I noticed that something wasn't there on the cart. And what it was that wasn't there was um, a jola or kind of a shoulder bag. That shoulder bag had three items in it. The three items were three notebooks with the entirety of five months of study and notes from Dharma Talks. That was all that was in the bag, and it was gone. You want to talk about attachment? (laughs) I mean, that would be the equivalent of losing your master's thesis just after you completed it, except the entire thesis was um, created in the oral tradition, so you can't go research it again. Panic, wanting, attachment, desire. Running through the Singapore airport, trying to figure out where I walked. Um, Thinking about what was in those notebooks and getting clear, like, wow, teachings from the Karmapa, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the interviews with the master teachers I worked with, two months of notes from Buddhist philosophy classes, 15 books that I'd studied and taken meticulous notes on. And reflections. It's just like thinking, 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 fear. So I'm going to leave you there. (laughs) You know, obviously I survived the experience because I'm sitting here. (laughs) And move on to fear, which is the second so called hindrance or opportunity to wake up. Okay? So the fear flavors are everything from. Fear to aversion to anger, the I don't want mind. I don't want it. I don't want this bag to be gone. I don't want this knee pain. You know, I don't want this uh, noise near me that's happening in the meditation hall. I don't want, name your object. It really doesn't matter. It's the I don't want mind, you know. And one of the powerful antidotes to the fearful, I don't want mind, the mind that closes against experience, is the loving-kindness practice that we've been teaching. 
It's the traditional antidote to this that the Buddha taught uh, the monks in the forest who were being terrified by forest noises and tree spirits, as the story goes. So I want to take a moment and think about why that would be a really primary antidote. Why loving kindness when there's fear? What loving kindness is fundamentally is a basic friendliness. So it's a basic friendliness towards our own experience as it is, our own bodies as they are, our personality as it is. And then we branch out from there, you know, to others' bodies, personalities, to the culture as it is. This basic attitude of friendliness that allows us to open to the challenging places, to the I don't want, to the fear, to the rage, to the blame, whether it's directed to the self or outside, and say, okay, you know, am I going to be friends with this in this moment, or am I going to create an enemy in this moment? And it's not one way. It's living its life. And friend and enemy flip back and forth endlessly. In our moment-to-moment experience, you know, and, and in our relationships over the course of time as well. Maybe not those two extremes, but we all know that our closest friends, we have these moments where we just can't stand them. You know, that's the truth. They flicker through, and we do the same thing to ourselves. Loving kindness. The third so-called hindrance is the hindrance of sloth, torpor, and sleepiness. And Donald primarily talked about sleepiness yesterday, which was very appropriate because it was what we were all living with that first day of the retreat. I want to talk a little bit more about this sloth and torpor quality. And a couple of metaphors that I like to describe it, this quality of sloth and torpor, what is it? One way of describing it is as a bat hanging in a tree. (laughs) Molasses cleaving to a stick. (laughs) Or a lump of butter too stiff to spread. You know, sloth and torpor, it's just like congealed and kind of sticky, murky uh, quality of, of mind, really, that manifests itself also through the body. Donald talked about some very skillful means for working with this. And I think the only thing I wanted to add to the skillful means that he mentioned are two things. One is that you can check at this point in the retreat with your food intake, and you'll start to see the cycles of your energy on retreat. And for a lot of people, right after meals is a real sloth and torpor mind, you know, and also body. So not to deprive yourself of food in any way, but just to check and see if a little less helps support your energy is another skillful means. And then the last thing is, at this point in the retreat, 
You can also check in because sometimes the sloth and torpor mind is actually a mind of protection. And it might be protecting us from something that's just about to be born in our system, some emotion, uh, some old story that isn't quite ready to be born and our system isn't quite ready to receive it. So you can just ask yourself, you know, is there something I'm leaving out in this moment? And see what comes. It may not come the moment you ask the question. It may come a half an hour later. But to show you're caring by asking the question and just seeing. You know, don't make a project out of it. Don't go looking for anything. It's just a caring question. The fourth opportunity for awakening is the mind of restlessness, which, again, is the kind of the counter to the sloth and torpor, and you often find that you're fluctuating back and forth between the two. So with restlessness, a few other flavors of that that you might be noticing are kind of worry or an overexcitement of mind. And again, at this point in the retreat, you can really use some of the power of your practice to focus in more, you know, on your primary object at that point, even though everything feels very intense. See if you can use a little bit of that momentum to just focus in on the breath or a sensation a little bit more. Uh, Just kind of calm the restlessness. And if it all feels like just too much, You might also just want to open your eyes for a minute and realize, oh, there's space for all this energy and movement to happen. You know, there's plenty of space above us, between us and the ceiling, and the sky is further than that. So the last so-called hindrance is the hindrance of doubt. My current favorite definition of doubt is vexation due to perplexed thinking. (laughs) That's a great one. Vexation due to perplexed thinking. So, you know, we get into all kinds of doubts about uh, practice. And we start to cultivate at this time, and and continuously so, and and those of us that have been practicing longer, we have more strength in this, but this quality of trust. You know, may I trust in the unfolding of this moment? May I trust in the unfolding of this retreat? May I trust in the unfolding of my own life? little less control. So much of doubt is trying to figure it out and control the outcome. So we relax into a little bit more trust. So, of course, because of the nature of impermanence, all these road bumps, you know, we, we end up crossing all these streams. They all pass away. And... What I want to mention in relation to that is the importance of when we're in a struggle and it passes away. The importance of that moment. You know, so when you're really caught in a doubt attack or a wanting attack or, you know, what we call a multiple hindrance attack where they all come visit at once and feed on each other. uh, Notice when they're passing away. Everything has its life cycle. Every single thing is born, lives its life, and passes away. Noticing this truth is one of the key aspects of the practice of Dhamma. 
Um, so not to miss that and be hurrying on to the next breath or, or the wonderful feeling of, of relief. Definitely get to know the feeling of release, relief, the passing away feeling. Uh, so that it's familiar. When things become familiar, they're easier to call up. And we've developed a relationship with them so that they know that they can pass away faster because we've acknowledged them with our attention. When we acknowledge things with our attention, it's almost as if our system knows that there's importance there. Really so much of what this practice is is just creating new habits. We've built so many habits over the course of long periods of time and then we're rebuilding. So when an old habit pattern of one of these hindrances passes away, it's like, notice that. Um, And notice the space before the next so-called problem arises. You know, notice that space. What is the quality of that space? What is the quality of heart? What, What happens in the body in that space before the next storyline? Sometimes these moments are even called something called kind of mini cessations. And a Thai forest meditation master, Ajahn Buddhadasa, he talks about these kind of gaps where the hindrances aren't present, where the greed and the anger and the confusion aren't present. And he calls them kind of mini nirvanas or mini awakenings. And he talks about nirvana for everybody. And he actually says that every single human being has these moments these gaps, and that if we didn't have them, we'd actually go insane. So to really notice them and learn from them and take them in and not be so quick to jump into the next more active experience can be really fruitful. So, of course, when we're in those moments, you know, this mind of non-resistance or non-struggle naturally turns and radiates that loving kindness because it's a quality we already have. So we're just uncovering it. And it's interesting because so many people that I've talked to this retreat have been talking about gratitude practice. And I just, I want to bring that in because it, it seems to already be in the room. And... If you're inspired to amp up your feelings of appreciation when they come, you know, your feelings of gratitude just for the simple things of, of, you know, sitting next to somebody who's sitting like a rock, you know, and really encouraging you that way, or or just the simple gratitude for um, the rain stopping if you don't like the rain, or you know, stopping at the end of a walking path and just taking in everything, whatever it is for you, uh, to not think that that's other than what we're doing here. That's very much a part of what we're doing here. That's the cultivation aspect. There's the purification aspect and the cultivation aspect of practice. And also not to forget that every single one of you is being an inspiration for somebody else here. Every single one of you is being the person of encouragement that John was to me just by keeping going. You know, so other people are doing that for you, but you are doing that for other people. You know, so you can kind of 
sink into that goodness and that greatness in yourself without having to make more of it. But remember it's there, that goodness, that courageousness. Remember it's there. Then, of course, I'm sure some of you have run into the shale in your practice. Anybody run into a patch of shale where it's just unbearably hard? Maybe. You know, if not in this retreat, in your life, guaranteed. It's that first arrow that Donald was talking about last night, you know, that suffering is part of being a human being, living a life, and sometimes it gets really hard and really intense, and do we shoot that second arrow? And what do we do when we do shoot that second arrow is actually another very key question. Because of course we will. We will. So when the fear, the grief, the shame, you know, or the rage, when it overcomes you, which it does. I really want to encourage you, be the voice of encouragement, to be very, very gentle with yourself. You know, to bring in that spirit of friendliness and kindness at the hardest moments. To bring in the spirit of forgiveness when you cannot be kind to yourself in the hardest moments. And when you're really riding those waves of strong emotions, you know, if not here in your life, uh, this thing about, Heather, take a breath, honey. Take a breath. is actually something I use in my own practice all the time when there's strong emotions. And what it means to me is that a strong emotion comes and it's this permission to ourselves to bear to take a single breath with the sadness not worrying about the rest of that shale trail or how long the sadness is going to last or how am I going to survive it just the next breath can I just take one breath with this shame and feel it all the way through that breath just one and then if I can do that Starting over again, brand new. Can I just take one more? And then when you can't just take one more, expanding out. You know, because what happens when we're in great struggle and challenge is the body and the mind get exhausted. And it's actually not cheating to take a break and gather your resources and support to go back and meet that challenge. So it might be opening your eyes and looking around the room for a minute, looking out the window and realizing that the world is big. It might be putting your hand on the earth the way that Siddhartha did that night under the Bodhi tree, the night of his awakening, and remembering, oh yeah, the earth is my witness to all my good actions. And the earth is actually large enough to hold the tremors of my rage. You know, 
using these reminders of our largeness and our interconnectedness can really be helpful. And then we can go right back in and say, okay, you know, where's the shame living in the body now? Has it changed? The good news in this case is that all these things pass. And we just say this over and over again because it's amazing how often we forget. When something becomes a main event, it's the main event. Whether it's a physical pain or emotional pain or the exciting thing that just happened, uh, it all comes, it all lives its life, it all passes away. And what we're left with was what Donald spoke about so much last night is this not knowing You know, we actually don't know what's going to happen for the rest of the evening. We have a whole solstice ritual planned, and there appears to be a walking meditation period. And I'm sure that you have plans about where you might go walking or that you're not going to walk, you're going to stretch, and and your ideas about what might happen with the solstice ritual. All this, I mean, this is life, this is what we do, and it's completely wide open. The potential and possibility is infinite, which is completely exciting and sometimes completely terrifying. But what it leaves room for is something I just like to give a really simple term to, and I just call it the wow. It leaves room for the wow. So I just like to ask you for a moment to reflect on What has been your wow today when you dropped all your plans and expectations? What has been your moment of wow? Was it looking at the tree in the courtyard? Or maybe it was super early this morning at what, 1.30 a.m. and you managed to catch the lunar eclipse? (laughs) Wow. Or something really simple. Like when I found the first quartz crystal up in the Himalayas, maybe you just saw something on the ground that caught your attention. Or maybe you were tying your shoe. How many thousands of times have we done that in our life? And all of a sudden it's like, wow, how does this work? I had a really interesting wow moment on this retreat when Donald was giving the walking meditation instructions and we were all swaying to and fro. And I was just swaying to and fro. I was like, wow, (laughs) this works. You know, the intention arises to put the pressure on the right foot and the whole thing happens and there's this aliveness and movement. Wow. Don't miss that. Again, that's the cultivation aspect of our practice. It's also one of the benefits of practice. Everything becomes more alive when we bring mindfulness to it. The sounds are more melodious in all ways, and the smells are stronger, and everything becomes more alive. There's one particular 
wow experience that I want to bookmark. And that's the experience of wow, of letting go. And sometimes it's really simple, the letting go, and sometimes it is a peak experience. In some ways, the simple letting goes are sometimes, they're more beneficial because then we don't get the idea that we have to have a peak experience to let go. We don't. And that takes us back to the Singapore airport. (laughs) Running through the Singapore airport thinking about the teachings from the Karmapa and His Holiness and realizing what was in the bag and feeling the grief of the loss and the anger that I had done something so stupid and the whole mishmash And it's nowhere. I'm following my whole path. It's nowhere. And at some point in that journey, this thing called letting go just spontaneously happened, running at high speeds. So don't think that you have to be sitting quietly or silently or going slowly. I was running at top speed. And... It really is amazing how when we set up the conditions in our practice and in our lives, letting go starts to happen more and more often spontaneously. And for me, in this story, in that moment, that letting go was just a simple dropping of the load of the grief and of the longing to have what I couldn't have because I knew that it was gone. You know, there's thousands of people in this airport and items left unattended will be confiscated and destroyed and I knew it was gone. (laughs) That moment of letting go, the heart just released and I realized in that moment that even though I'd lost the most precious material possession that I carried with me for six months and that I had lost documented memories that I was depending on. You know, it's almost like a uh, losing a photo album. I realized that I could trust that what was taken in was enough. You know, that whatever had already been integrated from the learning, from the practice was enough. And it just completely let go. And I just, I stopped running. I was walking fast. I was walking slow. And it's just this letting go. You know, and when that happens, we feel it in the whole body. Uh, One of my dear friends likes to call it dropping the load. We drop the load. We feel it in the body. We feel it in our hearts. And it's just this ease. Nothing changed. The bag was still gone. And it was okay. Our life circumstances, when the hard things happen, where is the okayness? You know, that's not shooting the second arrow, as Donald was speaking about. And so I was about to turn around, and um, I saw an information desk, and I figured, well, I could at least, you know, find out where lost and found is. And I walked up to the information desk, and there's a woman behind the desk, and I said, I lost a bag. 
And I'm wondering where lost and found is. And she said, oh, what does it look like? And I said, well, uh, it's a shoulder bag, and it had some notebooks in it, and it's gold. And she said, does it have a shawl on it? And I said, yes, it does. I had wrapped a shawl around the handle. And she said, we just found it. It's on the other end of Terminal 1. Go check with the information table. (laughs) I mean, it's only been a week. I'm still flabbergasted. (laughs) And I just looked at her and I said, Thank you so much. There were five months of work in that bag. And she looked at me and she said, I'm so glad we found it for you. And just the amount of gratitude to the care of... In some ways, the culture there in, in Singapore, you know, there's a certain, a certain attentiveness and, and care that's in the culture there. So now I have the bag, and I have to tell you, I I only used one quote from those notebooks. (laughs) Because what was understood was that what was learned is enough. And what I digest or remember from that notebook six months ago, I'll tell you in a talk six months from now. Um, But it's not about that, it's about our journey. It's about our journey. That we each go through that process and we realize, oh, I can let go of this struggle. And that I am enough. And this moment is enough. Wow. That's wow. I'll end the talk with a poem. It's by Donna Falls. It's called Let It Go. And we can just listen to this poem together and and sit together and share what's been moved in us all through these words together. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy that you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go. And the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams and destinations.
Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. Certain transformation. I have great gratitude and respect for each of you for making this journey so that we can all take it together and so that we can imbue our lives with these teachings, imbue our relationships, and not just transform ourselves, but bring that transformation in widening circles to the world. Thank you for your practice, and thank you so much for the kindness of your attention. We will walk. We will notice that we are walking. We will notice if there's any wow or letting go, and then we'll come back and share a ritual together at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.